0: I'm Ian Kahanowitz, and I'll be talking about my uh, book, Baseball Gods and Scandal. Normally what I do, what I'm not going to do here, is if there was a big enough crowd... And make you all sing. Take me out to the ball game, because that's what I—that's what I do. You know, it's, its what I do. From whether it was kindergarten and on to—and I made people do it. I made people do it, and I sing along with it. And you know, I say, "I want to see how much of a good crowd you are." And I'll uh, be like, uh, "Rodney Danger, yeah, you're really good crowds, you know." <laughs> but now, as getting back, Ty Cobb has probably been the most uh, maligned sports figure ever. When he died, um, he was painted as this racist, as this uh, bad person who raped people and... And I think for the next 30 years, when no one really spoke up about it, um, you had all these rumors going around about Cobb that uh, just weren't true. And I think um, it came to a head if you've ever seen the movie Cobb with uh, Tommy Lee Jones, totally fiction. So when I got to the subject with my book, there was a, another book written two years earlier four years earlier, Charles Learson. He wrote the book on Ty Cobb, and he disproved a lot of myths. Now, in my research, it just confirmed what he wrote about but for the Ty Cobb-Trispeaker affair I, that was my focus I got more research than Learson had and it shows a very human side of Cobb how he was very hurt that you know that they put him on trial for this that he had to resign from baseball and if you think he was such a bad guy down in Georgia uh, when they were waiting for the results from Landis after his hearing in Chicago uh, people came, wow, thousands came out two days before Christmas and they held rallies uh, in uh, Augusta, Georgia and they were draped in confederate flags and there was bonfires. There was even a uh, makeshift doll of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the the commissioner with a noose around his neck and they're all screaming Cobb, we love you and even his wife, who he didn't get along with very well, he ended up divorcing her many years later, she spoke of the She was very, very private. She was very, very shy, and she spoke up. My husband's not a cheat and and all this stuff. And it's been very, very difficult um, to convince people that Cobb wasn't the image that we know know from 1961. And my research shows that Connie Mack who was one of the pioneers uh, in base? We know who Connie Mack was? He was the owner and president of the Philadelphia Athletics for over 50 years. I mean, he was a baseball person for over 60 years. If Cobb was so evil and if Cobb was so mean, why would Connie Mack go down to try to sign him after the whole affair took place? He gave him a blank check and said, write any amount you want you know we watch in Philadelphia you know it, it, the rumors versus the research I did just doesn't pan out it doesn't pan out and then Cobb you know slowly I have a Ty Cobb um I have a Ty Cobb webpage on Facebook I have Cobb's grandchildren in there who usually you know post and always thank me uh, for their support but it's not revisionary history as people like to you know call it it's uncovering it was like archaeology you had to go beneath the surface from all the stuff that's been built up for the last 58 years and literally try to disprove it with firsthand evidence uh, so that no one can poke a hole at me saying, well, where did you get this? It's, It's all documented, you know, in firsthand sources. So it's all documented and I didn't craft it in such a way. We were making Cobb a mata because he wasn't a mata. You know, at times he could be nasty, but again, baseball was a nasty sport. You know, he didn't sharpen his spikes and purposely spike people. You know, he actually slid on the ground, you know, with his his, uh, feet pointing down, not up, like many people believed he did to hurt the player that's ready to tag him. In the research I found, He admits, I spiked only two people purposely in my life, and Dutch Leonard was one of it. (laughs) And Fooke Cobb, was a great philanthropist, okay? Even with the meager wages he made, he invested in the Coca-Cola company. Made millions off of it he really didn't need to gamble. Okay, like these other guys, like Speaker gambled on anything, you know, horses. You know, if he's, go- you know, when 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 the Pinkerton detectives followed Cobb, and Speaker after they were accused, they found Cobb didn't bet on anything. Speaker bet on everything, um, but. With Cobb, you know, today there's a college fund for poor kids. Uh, that Cobb, the Cobb, uh, you know, college fund, uh, they have hospitals, libraries, it's all over Georgia, and that's because of the, uh, the charity that he gave to the philanthropy. Um, he does admit. When he is, and I got the transcript, he does admit that he gambled on the first two games of the World Series that year, the Black Sox, and he gambled on the Black Sox because he thought they were going to kill the Reds, and they were overmatched, uh, and he does do that under uh, under oath, on uh, testimony to uh, Commissioner Landis during the trial. Um, Speaker was another story. Uh, speaker uh, is probably the, the one of the most forgotten players of his time period, and it's a shame because the guy batted three forty five for his lifetime average. Okay, three forty five. He had the most triples, the most putouts. He was the best center fielder. If there was uh, film like cameras in the day. Uh, He'd be comparable with Willie Mays. Willie Mays is probably the best center fielder. But from what I've read about Speaker, from what I've uh, picked up about Speaker in the newspapers, uh, the guy was amazing in center field and batted three forty five for a lifetime average. Now, Speaker was a Southerner. He was from Texas. I think it was Evanston, Texas. Well, anyway, um, he was part of the Ku Klux Klan. Many people don't know that. and he Played in Boston, and he played in Cleveland. Northern cities. Um, in those days, the Klan was very, very prevalent after 1915. And if you were going to get anywhere uh, in politics, in business, in sports, you joined the Klan. It was just like joining Netflix in those days. I, I like to make the comparison. Are we all part of Amazon Prime? We are. Same way to beat a Klan. Um, Now, with Speaker, it would later come back to bite him long after he died when Marvin Miller, the union chief... Motioned the Hall of Fame to get him out because of his, uh, his his racism, but um, it really wasn't speak his fault. The Grand Wizard lived in his town, you know. Hey, how you doing? Good. All right, we're on tape, so sit down, grab a seat, you know, and uh, that's all right. You know, I'd rather be late. <laughs> I didn't know where you were. I was just kind of wandering around. Really? There. You should have you should have a sign downstairs, I Get the part right, job. Too, then you six, know. Six, <laughs> you know but um, no Speaker um, Speaker was a prolific uh, and again he got caught up in this thing where he wasn't even implicated in the letters but yet everyone you know they say well he was there you know and he's gambling and everything so we might as well sweep him as well um, Speaker was popular up here you know Trispeaker was oh yeah no, no, I'm an old time baseball fan ah good I, that's
1: why I'm curious I never heard I know Dutch Thunder. I'm not the name Dutch Thunder. but I- Was he a
0: pitcher? Dutch China was a left-handed pitcher.
1: And I I know Chris Krieger, obviously, because he played for the Red Sox. Yep. Um, And I know Ty Cobb. So I was kind of curious. I didn't realize there was a connection here that... uh you know, I'm trying to, I was curious to find out what the connection between all of them was. Because oh, well. Speaker started with the Red Sox the, the Indians, right? Yeah,
0: and what happened was um, I spoke about, with Tris Speaker he started with the uh, Red Sox prior around 1908, 1909. He wasn't so good in the beginning, and then he had a breakout year in 11, 12, he hit well over 300. Um, he was with Boston until 1916, and he had a fight with management. He wanted more money. He was going to think he was uh, he was, so were you suggesting
1: the the Red Sox in the early nineteen teens would trade people because
0: they wanted more money? Yeah, because the federal league was <laughs> because the federal league was uh, was there and they were offering the Speaker hell of a lot of money and he stayed because I was, I was telling them the federal league competed with the major leagues and so a lot of major leaguers like Eddie Plank. Um, you know, uh, Chief Bender. They went to the new league because they didn't have what was called the reserve clause. There wasn't a salary cap. Yeah. So if there's a salary cap, and he get paid three thousand in the major leagues, now you're doubling it. Why wouldn't you go? The speaker turned it down because his, because uh, Boston offered him a lot more than when the when when the league failed, they put his salary back down. It's no more competition. Like, yeah, well that's great. They said, well you batted three eighty last year but now he only batted 335. So, yeah. So they lowered it, and he said, you know what? Piss off. I went out, and they sent him to Cleveland. Uh, with Smokey Joe Wood, another great Red Sox Percy He blew out his arm. Uh, during that great season of 1912, you couldn't hit. You couldn't hit Wood. He was 34-5. and He uh, had a minuscule uh, ERA, and... Uh, he hurt his arm um, the year after, and it just ruined him as a pitcher. He became a utility player, and he batted two eighty three for the rest of his life. He became he was able to become a hitter, but at the time, he was a pitcher. Um, Dutch Leonard was a very overpowering pitcher. Um,
1: Leonard pitched for
0: the Red Sox, too, didn't he? He did. Okay. He pitched from 19... 1913 to uh, 1918. And then he got involved with the war and I'll tell you what happens there. So Leonard was from Fresno, California. He owned a fruit farm, keep that in mind. Um, And so... He was making money off his fruit farm. Baseball was like a hobby for him. He wasn't like a working man's people were like you. Work in a factory, or you play baseball. It was a comparable salary. Um, so. In 1914, um, think of the staff, Wood, Babe Ruth, (laughs) Dutch Leonard. These are great pitches, you know, and they would win the uh, World Series in 1915 and 16, as well as 1912 and then later in 1918 in the um, war-shortened season. And um, Leonard had a 0.96 ERA for that, and it's the lowest ERA in the American League. Uh, It's never been broken. Walter Johnson could have done it. Um, in 1913 but in those days they usually eased up the last week when they're not in playoffs so Sam Crawford from the Detroit Tigers was trying to hit 300 and he gave him sucker pitches to hit and raised his ERA to 1.13 I think for the year, yeah so people don't know that, yeah. I speak to Walter Johnson's grandson Hank Thomas who wrote his uh, grandfather's biography his grandfather died probably about two months before he was born in 1946 Walter Johnson and uh, right now, I'm writing about the 1924 World Series and the um, another scandal that happened, and so I'm using his book as uh, as a part of my research. Uh, so it's a 1924. That's the that's the um, that's the O'Connell Dolan uh, bribe attempt. The Giants were ready to win the pennant. Uh, And they bribed um, the last place Philadelphia Phillies. They were in a heated race with their rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers and um, Brooklyn Robins, because it was uh, named after Uncle Robbie, uh, Wilbert Wilbert Robinson. And um, they offered uh, Henny Sands, the shortstop from Philadelphia, $500 if he would just lay low and, and not do and then it all came out it was all this big thing that overshadowed uh, the world series and then you have the teapot dump scandal uh that was plaguing washington now they're playing in washington because the senators have beaten the yankees uh and you have calvin coolidge who couldn't stand baseball at all his wife on the other hand was the official scorekeeper for the university of vermont when she was in college she was the baseball fan uh the first lady and um Clark Griffith, who owned the Senators, saw her one day keeping score, and Cal never showed up to a game until the election uh, season, when the 1924 World Series was, and he was so impressed with the First Lady that she got the whole scorecard right. She's like, I was I a was scorekeeper. She was the baseball fan, the Republican Party um, at the time, and this was about uh, two years before this uh, came out. Um... And the Republican Party, you know, they they had a battle of the Teapot Dome scandal uh, with Harding. And Cal was just not a nice guy to the public. He was, they called him Silent Cal because he never uh, opened his mouth. You know, he was very, very dour. Uh, He was like a New Englander. He was from Vermont. He was governor of Massachusetts, you know. You know, very reserved, very, you know. Very dour in his face, probably those New England winters. But the thing with Cal was, he had a um, dinner party one night. And to show you how short and to the point he was and how rude he was, uh, one of the reporters was a woman. And um, they sat at the table at the, one of the dinners he hated to host. He he's like, you must talk to me, Mr. President. I made a bet with my friends that I can make you say more than two words. And Cal looked at her and said, you lose. <laughs> and there was that. But very dour man, very, um, you know, and there was a scandal that, you know, overtook the whole World Series. You have the New York Giants who won the pennant for the fourth straight time. The Yankees won the pennant three straight times. But now this year, Washington uh, won it. And everything was going on in Washington. But... Washington wasn't a very happy place until the senators really won the pennant because you had Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, uh, stumping for the League of Nations and also the um, Treaty of Versailles, and he wanted the United States to get involved uh, in it. The problem was he, f- he neglected uh, social and economic things at home, and there was a recession. Um, he let attorney uh, Palmer Mitchell raid people's houses unconstitutionally due to the first Red Scare. Bolshevism now was the was the great uh, menace. We just beat the Kaiser in World War One. Now you have uh, people this. Um, the call for prohibition uh, was taking place. Now people are, you know, going to lose their alcohol. Uh, it was very, very, very sad after World War One. So you we know, got Warren G. Harding comes along and says, "Look, we're going to bring back America normalcy." Mm-hmm. What that was was no one really knows. His his view of normalcy was what America was like before the war. That never happened. His cabinet was crooked. <laughs> They sold federal... They sold federal oil reserves to private, ent- uh, you know, entre- entrepreneurs, and both the um, secretary and the attorney general <laughs> made away with them, though. No. <laughs> they <So, laughs> killed Warren, Harding. He had a massive heart attack, you know, besides his a little Ill- illegitimate children. <laughs> you know, he stuck his head in the sand and refused to believe because he was just being... fingers of point. So Washington, for the last seven years... You know, five, six, seven years since the war was a very sad place, a hotbed of issues. The senators were an awful team, but now here's something to uh, get excited about. Plus, the new election's coming up, and Calvin Coolidge, the most unlikable candidate, unlikable president pretty much up until that time, and now has to win an election, and he embraced baseball. Okay, he embraced baseball for the public, and uh, my research shows that he used baseball smiling, throwing out the ball, um, learning about it through his wife so he could win the next election, which he did in a landslide. Baseball would become his best friend that fall. Uh, now, the thing with Calvin Coolidge was, um, he had reason to be dour he had uh, two months earlier he lost a sixteen year old son caught a toe infection in those days and didn 't have penicillin and the kid died high fever, you know. I would have been dead a long time ago. I've had so many infections. In fact, I had my second uh, toe cut off last year because I have diabetes. Oh. So I had an infection. and I would have died if they didn't have all these things. But his son died. His son died. And so baseball rejuvenated his spirit, at least momentarily, because as soon as the election was over, he went back to being si- silent. Bauer. Just for that moment in time, he gave speeches, all the washing, um, was uh, going crazy. Now, Ben Johnson was the president of the American League. He would come here in two years later against Landis, who was commissioner. Before there was Landis, there was Ban Johnson. And most of the things we know about Ban Johnson was he was this fallen czar. He looked like a buffoon when he investigated the Black Sox scandal because Landis didn't want to do it. No matter what a court of law would say, Landis was going to do whatever he wanted to do. He was picked to run baseball by the owners who lost faith in Ben Johnson who was on the National Commission Uh, Johnson was the uh, czar for 20 years of baseball he is probably one of the most lost characters that he's in the Hall of Fame he was a great man at the time he was ruthless But he bought a minor league called the Western League in 1893, went bankrupt, and his friend Charles Comiskey, the Black Sox, um, urged him. He was a newspaper uh, reporter at the time, Ben Johnson, and he had some money. Uh, He dropped out of law school, couldn't stand the law, and uh, his friend Charles Comiskey said, "Look." You uh, know, we're trying to revive the Western League. I strongly suggest you buy into it. At the same time, Kaminsky, uh was the manager of the uh, of the Cincinnati Red Stockings in that league. Okay, and so what happened was. Comiskey was doing a dual role, he was trying to get his friend Ben Johnson in because Johnson favored Comiskey in his articles, also favored the players when they formed a new league in 1890 called the Players League because they didn't want, that was the first labor problem in in baseball, they didn't want to be part of this plantation. Uh, So he got together with Comiskey and Comiskey said to the board we should let Ben Johnson and they did. And the thing thrived as a minor league for six years. And during those six years, uh, again, no one was challenging Major League Baseball. The American Association was still a minor league. All other leagues were wiped out because, like any other corporation, Major League Baseball made sure uh, they're going to have a war with you. They're going to kill you and then pretty much absorb you and your teams. And so what happened was Ban Johnson wanted to make his Western League a clean league. And what I mean by clean is in the nationally there was gambling going on there was rowdyism in the crowds it really wasn't a place to bring children or families there were roughnecks there were drunks they used to chase the umpires off the field with knives if they thought they oh yeah it was you know was, yeah well. but they used to i mean being an umpire meant your life i mean they would literally do that and there was no gates and no police or nothing and you know, you you know, uh, John McGraw, who played for the Baltimore Orioles in the 1890s. Uh, the kind of uh, things that were going on in the Major League, if somebody was going around the base, they'd stick their leg out, pull their belt, try to keep it. And again, the ball that they used was called the dead ball because they used one ball throughout the whole game. So if you hit a foul ball, they had to throw it back. So by the 5th or 6th inning, this ball has been spit on because spitballs were allowed dirt hair gum whatever you know shoe polish because the catcher would sometimes have a little uh, bottle here and put it on so the ball that stranger it looked like a head cabbage but the leaves falling off which makes it more amazing how Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker were able to hit as well as they did. Uh, not to mention the field, and Chris, try to field his bone well throat to first, especially with the small gloves they had. It's like, it's probably your leather gloves that you take uh, in the winter with the fur inside. That's pretty much the size of the gloves that those guys wore in the early years. But Ben Johnson wiped out riotism. He wiped out the gambling and the drunkenness, and the Western League grew. And when I mean the Western League, league. I'm talking about Milwaukee. I'm talking about Minnesota. I'm talking about Iowa. I'm talking about everything up to the Mississippi because everything else, the Pacific Coast had their own league and Major League Baseball could only travel by train. There was no such things as airplanes yet. So in 1900, Ben Johnson says, I want to make this league in competition with the National League. And I'm going to ask for their permission. And if I don't get their permission, let them piss off. And basically, they they told Johnson, piss off, which he knew. And so what Johnson did was, he didn't have the reserve clause, he didn't have a salary cap, and he raided... the the National League's rosters so many players went over when Johnson promised them double the salary, they all moved and by 1901 the American League was outdoing the National League in in sales, gate receipts, because that was pretty much the only way you made money, there was no radio there was no television rights like there are today and you know, and I have the uh, percentages in the book uh, on what was going on, and finally the National League saw the writing on the wall and they sued for P In 1903, and the two leagues combined, which we know as Major League Baseball, the American League and the National League, and Ban Johnson dominated the peace talks. He dominated the what was called the National Commission, where the American League president, the National League president, and a chairman chosen by the two of them would head a committee and run baseball like Landis would do 20 years later. Now. Ben Johnson had, and this is very rare, um, Gary Herman um, was a rich owner and he would buy the Cincinnati Reds who would lose in the World Series in 1919, who was the chairman of, of the National uh, Commission, uh, but for some reason always voted with Ben Johnson and not his own president of the national, because again, very strange, they always said, you know, uh, Herman Man was in Band's pocket for years now. Very powerful. He ran a tight ship when Ty Cobb um, decided to not play um, after he was, um, well, he was thrown off for going into the, um, into the stands when a heckler was bottom and he didn't realize that the guy had no uh, hands and arm. So he just started wailing on him and uh, Johnson suspended him. So the Detroit Tigers went on strike it was the first strike in major league baseball in 1912 and he said if you guys don't come back you're all going to get fined 100 dollars, which they were and that's a big chunk of money when you're only earning three thousand dollars a year so you all came back and then he succumbed to Cobb because of his popularity. Unlike his players, his fellows who stood up for Cobb, Cobb was only fined fifty dollars. But the point was made. Johnson was a supreme ruler. Now Johnson made a lot of bad mistakes. When you get to this, when you get to this power, you see it every day on TV in Washington. <laughs> We all know what power could do. You know, being I was vice president of the tax department of Citizens Bank, I could tell you what power did or what it does to people. Ben Johnson started to make some stupid rulings. One of them was... uh, sending players like George Sisler, who was a fantastic player, uh, the rights from Pittsburgh owner, Bonnie Dreyfus. He played for the minor leagues. Pittsburgh had rights from. He didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. He went to college, became an all-star, also became a mechanical engineer. Um, and when he came out, Branch Rickey, who would be famous for putting on uh, Jackie Robinson, he was the manager of um, the St. Louis Browns. He was also the manager of Michigan University where Sisla went and he was able to get the National Commission on the ban Johnson to nullify any rights the Pittsburgh Pirates had to him and that made the Pirates mad so you're starting to get owners getting really antsy especially in the National League Um, you know, over uh, Johnson, the big thing came for Johnson in 1919 before the Black Sox scandal. Carl Mays was a Red Sox pitcher. He came in a very good one. And in 1919, he walked off the field after the Red Sox were playing horribly. He's like, I'm not going to play for this team. The heck with it. I don't want to deal with it. And he walked off. And um, what happened was, Um, Johnson was going to fine him but the Red Sox traded him without Johnson's approval now again Johnson made sure he had 51% ownership in every American League uh, team so that he can have control over ownership and the managers and when he heard this that he was traded without his knowledge he blew a gasket he nullified it he told the umpires not to let Mays pitch it was so bad that for the first time ever uh, the, um, it ended up in court the Yankees uh, Colonel Houston and um, Jacob Rupert took Ben Johnson to court and the court ruled in favor of the Yankees and Johnson with that one swoop his power was pretty much at bay what happened was The 1919 World Series came, and the whole debacle ensued. They didn't find out until 1920, but by the time 1920 came, the American League, Bands League, they were divided. There was pro-Johnsons and anti-Johnsons. The Yankees, Red Sox, and his old friend Charles Comiskey were against Johnson. Comiskey and him had a falling out when uh, he had rights to a pitcher, Comiskey, and Ben Johnson ruled against him. These guys shared an office in Chicago him being on the White Sox Ben Johnson's office in Chicago he he ended up hating him for the rest of his life after this one incident uh, what happened was the wall was on and I forget the name of this picture and he and, you know like everything else everyone went into the army to go fight and this picture did really well for uh, Chicago and you know he wanted it Comiskey and after the end of the season um, he went somewhere else and Johnson said that's fine and Comiskey took it personally, never again would these guys even talk he, he, he had so much of venom against Ben Johnson, he wouldn't even sit on any of the board dealings when he was there uh, that's how bad it got between him and Comiskey and so when the 1919 uh, World Series uh, hit and it was found out later on in 1920 because rumors nearly didn't get started until a year later Yeah, uh, you had Johnson taunting Comiskey saying you have a very you know, crooked team that's because you pay your uh, players like crap and the reason why they call them the Black Sox wasn't because they were dirty they were really dirty Comiskey didn't even launder the clothes They made he made his players take it to the laundry and they didn't have the money to do so so they called him the Black black socks because their uniforms are pretty much black but it just it just compounded the situation with the black socks that they were black in heart and decided to throw the world series of 1919 so then the owners say look This isn't working. Gary Herman, the chairman, came under scrutiny. Johnson's under scrutiny. And they go to uh, federal district court judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and I said, would you please take the Reigns as baseball's first commissioner? And he's... You know, I've been a federal judge here for 20 years, and they're like, please, and he said, if I take it, I'm going to have the ultimate rights, no one's going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to be pretty much the dictator of baseball, and they said, yes, yes, whatever, and they gave him unlimited power. Now. When the Black Sox scandal hit, the district attorney lost all the confessions and the files. No one knew what happened to them. So Ben Johnson was waiting on Landis, who was a recent commissioner, to see what he would do, and he was doing nothing. So Johnson went to him. From his own money, from the American League's money, he traveled across America picking up evidence so he could try these guys, uh, the Black Sox, in 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 a of law and he did. He got the evidence to at least have the prosecution to have somewhat of a case. Now we all know the story. The court of law exonerated these guys, said it wasn't enough evidence. Ban Johnson looks stupid. He's trying to get his power back from Landis, who already, you know, is, took it from him. Landis hinges upon this. Okay? He's like, not only is Ban Johnson, you know, a problem here, but. Um, I don't have to listen to the courts. I have a legal philosophy called legal realism, which means, you know, when you look at a judge, he's in his robe, he's in his gavel, he's like, well, that's not what the law says, clink, 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 you know, whatever. Legal realism is what we consider liberal today, you know, the court is conservative, those who are within the boundaries, and then there's the liberals who like Brandeis wants to stretch the law. Why wouldn't the founding fathers think when they created the constitution that the law couldn't change with the times? Abortion, there was no abortion back then. Cars. We need laws for this, and it's all in the Constitution. But you got to bring it out and stretch it. Landis was like that, and with legal realism, it just didn't say what the black law, you know, was printed. What could the black little law mean to the situation at hand? Now it was written in 1850, but now it's 1926. How are we going to stretch it? and do that. But for the White Sox, he said, whatever the court of law says, I'm not following it. He stretched it because of the uproar. These guys would even think of, of um, putting a, a terrible stain on the image of baseball. If Landis exonerated and allowed these guys to play in baseball, people would, already would even lose more faith. This war would have died. So he did. He said, to hell with you. Goodbye. Now, Dutch Leonard, you know, he's not being cooperative when he came east to uh, rat on um, Cobb Speaker, Wood, and um, Fred West, who was a gatekeeper. Um, Landis didn't buy Ben Johnson's, uh, you know, file. The American League owners covered it up. And this is why I was telling her, this is why this is so much bigger scandal uh, than the 1919 white Sox. here you have eight players two of them didn't participate okay here not only do you have speaker and Cobb, whether they did it or not but you have dutch leonard who is pretty much you know the whole antagonist of this whole thing anyway who wasn't well liked and anything else and then you have all the american league owners The president of the American League, Ben Johnson, and the commissioner covering it up and not telling the public what's really going on. There was collusion amongst all of them. So what happened was on September 9th, by September 9th, The the story broke to um, Johnson uh, around May. Uh, Dutch Leonard came east and showed him the letters. And he said, these letters must not be shown the light of day. The letters were from Cobb and they were from Wood. And they explained a little bit... Of a gambling incident, but it really didn't specify what it was. People, you know, Fred West said it was horses, and no one said it was baseball, whatever it was. Johnson got scared. His, his image will even get worse. You know, to, you know, he's trying to gain some kind of power back from Landis after six years. So he does what any Gilded Age owner would do. He pays them off. Here's $20,000 that you want. Those are the three seasons he didn't work in Major League Baseball. And he, he's gone. Landis gets the files only because Ben Johnson decided to tell the owners. He was in cohorts with Frank Naven, uh, who was the owner of the Detroit Tigers, the uh, Cobb's boss and Dutch Leonard's boss. And together, they hushed up the thing. They didn't want no one to know. But now there was rumors that inside is like Jay Taylor Spink, who wrote the biography of uh, Landis, who I used a lot in my sources, because he had first-hand uh, accounts of this. Word was that it was going to be leaked to the press, and Johnson didn't want this. And if it leaked to the press, Landis found out he would have just gone crazy. So he instructs the uh, American League, this is what happened, uh, and then... uh, Edwin Barnard and Rupert from the Yankees said we got to tell Landis and John's like no, 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 no this is an American League family you don't want to do the and they tell the commissioner and Johnson is all upset so he literally goes out to California in October to speak to Dutch Leonard Uh, he travels to his fruit farm out there conducts his own investigation and now is calling for a hearing at the end of November, of course Dutch isn't going to come, he got paid $20,000 see you later, goodbye Um, so he conducts a hearing, Smokey Joe Wood uh, who was there, uh, Cobb and Speaker and during the hearing Smokey Joe Wood says look Cobb and Speaker did not gamble. I gambled. Okay? They didn't put up a cent of the money. Okay? This is the... I don't know what these letters are. You got my letter there. Doesn't... Speak. We had three people. It was me, Dutch, and another person. He would name the other person. The other person would have been Speaker. And I'm the one who gambled. Leave Cobb and Speaker alone. And the reason why Wood did this was... Um he was the baseball coach of Yale. He was out of Major League Baseball. Speaker and Cobb were still there. They had their legacies, you know, that were ready to be ripped under from them. And Wood said, you know, I did it. It was my fault. They just were there. They didn't do have anything to do with it. And so what Landis does, he takes it, takes all the testimony, and by now, Speaker, Cobb, and Wood Pressland is you've got to release all this to the press, which he did the next day. That's how I got all the transcripts. It was in every newspaper in America. I was able to go on microfiche and get the, the actual transcripts, which I have in the book. And so America is astounded. Two of the greatest players might have gambled. Uh, the, the, the outcries are crazy. Polls. It was almost like the O.J. Simpson case. Everyone had an opinion of it. Or the Dreyfus case. In France, should this, you know, high-ranking Jewish uh, officer, um, you know, be tried for treason? And there was a lot of anti-Semitism. But that's another story for another time. Anyway, everyone went crazy, and just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, the Black Sox come back, and you got you got, uh Rizberg. From who was now in Minnesota. He was the shortstop. He was one of the cohorts along with Chick Candle, who was down in the southwest. And he comes and he says to Landis, and Landis says, go away. And he says, okay. So he speaks to a Chicago Tribune reporter and says, I got so much stuff to say that's gonna blow the lid off the baseball. This This whole speaker and and, and Cobb thing, he was a piker bet. These these things went on all the time. Let me tell you what's going to happen, what really happens in baseball. And so now Landis, (laughs) New Year's Day's coming up. It's going to be 1926, seven. And so now he has to literally give up his New Year's Day to interview Swede Risberg in his office in Chicago. New Year's Day. And Risberg's telling him, yeah, there used to be collegialists. That used to go on. Teams used to just, you know, uh, stop at the end of the season for none. I mean, we make all a collection. Everyone would give in $45 and give it to the other team if we would lay down. And now he has to go through another hearing with the Black Sox again in 1927. Okay, so now all of them are on trial again because the game that Risberg was talking about was a Detroit and Chicago saying, Well, look, in 1917, you you know, Detroit laid down for us, and in 1919, 1920, we repaid the favor to Detroit. So now, not only is the whole Speaker Cobb thing going on, you got the Black Sox back in court and the Tigers. So Ty Cobb is there, being pissed off because Landis hasn't ruled on him yet, and he has to give, give testimony, yeah. And what happens with Risberg and Gandalf is, yes, it was found out that this stuff was collected, but Landis, realizing that if he rules against this, It's going to implicate Cobb on other things, so he rules against it. He's like, well, maybe Gandel and Risberg, but the rest of you, you know, you're not guilty. He did it to save face. He really couldn't do anything. And so what happened was, Ben Johnson goes wild over this, saying, it's the same case, I don't know what, you know, Landis is doing. And then he makes a huge mistake, Johnson. He gives an anonymous interview to the newspapers you know criticizing landis over this whole gandle risberg ty for speaker thing he's doing a horrible job everyone knew who it was there's only one person that really hates landis on an executive level and landis says to the american league i've had enough of this guy two years ago in the dolan o'connell case i was telling you about in washington you guys was supposed to get rid of him. You promised me this would never happen again. It's happening. He is ruining baseball. And finally, American League gives him the walking papers and he resigns. He resigns in disgrace. Uh, and that's pretty much the legacy we know of Ben Johnson. Now, in the meantime, Landis has to deal with Cobb and Speaker. And it was, it was like walking on eggshells. There was rumors that if he threw them out of baseball, they had a, a lot of documents in a Cleveland bank that would, you know, expose baseballs, uh, other scandals, there was talk of another league going to be started at the time, um, you had all these, and you had people Love Carbon Speaker. Love them. They don't want him to go. These are boyhood, you know, these are boyhood heroes. Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, all these people. And to do that and to tarnish their legacy, so Landis rules, these guys are exonerated. Now But he says to Ben Johnson and the American League, they're gonna stay in the American League no matter what you whatever Ben Johnson said doesn't matter he wants to really stick it to Johnson after he resigned and so Connie Mack went down uh, to Georgia to sign you know that's how he ends up in Philadelphia he was going to sign speaker but he gave Clark Griffith um, the promise he would play for Washington which he did in one season season after he played for Philadelphia and that's how they got onto it now as a result of Gandel and Risberg and Cobb and Speaker, four laws came out that were codified. Okay, and this is very important. The four laws, two of them said, if you are a player, an umpire, whatever, and you bet on baseball other than your own team, it's a year suspension. The last rule was if you bet on your own team, if you're an owner, if you're an umpire, and you're doing the game, whatever. If you're involved in a game, and you bet on your own game, it's a lifetime, you know, it's a lifetime banishment, okay? Now, fast forward 60 years, you got Pete Rose, right? And when still clamoring. At the time that Rose was being implicated, he admitted to Giamatti, yes, I did gamble, but I didn't gamble on regular games. So he threw him out, and he had a year, because it said in the laws, you have a year free, and same. he didn't do that. He, he said to Giamatti, I'll stay away, but he still could have done it within a year, but instead they went to court, and he lost his opportunity, and then it came out later on, he really did gamble on his own games, and he admitted it, and then he went back. Well, anyway, it was because of this scandal that the laws were codified. Now, also in the mid-80s, he had Joe Wood, and he was like 95 years old, He'd, and Barti Amati, who was the president of Yale, bestowed on Wood the Yale Award for Lifetime Achievement. Now. Twenty years before, in 1963 and in 1965, Wood gave a series of interviews to Lawrence Ritter. There was a book called uh, The Glory of Their Times, and it all dealt with uh, the um, old players from the dead ball era. In those interviews, uh, Wood tells Ritter, Lawrence Ritter, the author, common speaker actually bet. I was the banker, but I had to protect them because Landis couldn't get to me. Was there. They were going to, if, if it was found out, they bet they would have been, the baseball would have been done, they would have been not in the Hall of Fame, they would have never had their legacies. And he goes on and on and on. And he tells Lawrence Ritter, he tells Lawrence Ritter, you can never publish this. You can only publish bits of it. And Lawrence Ritter does. Okay. He promised what he would burn it. He never did. He was going to do it because he got cancer and he died in the late nineties. And when he died, his wife donated all his files to the Notre Dame library, the Hesburgh library. And I interviewed um, Gerald Wood, who wrote the book on Smoky Joe Wood. He traveled to Notre Dame, and he looked at the transcripts, the the ones that were not published. And I said, you know, this has fueled my interest to write about the scandal. It's never been written, uh, you know, as as uh, as much as this as I did. It's always mentioned. And he said, look. Those documents are very telling, but you're probably going to have to go to Notre Dame to do it. Um, there was another interview we gave with Eugene Murdoch, who was the author of Ban Johnson, the only bio of Ben Johnson, and he had uh, tapes in the Cleveland Library. So I called both these places, and wouldn't you know it, they digitalized it. And they sent me it, and I listened to all three hours of it. And the transcripts are in my book and how... 40 years later, he tells the truth that, you know, Speaker and Cobb did gamble and he gambled as well. And other things, even in the 1920 World Series when this stuff was going on, there was betting going on. So it's very interesting. Now, what's even more enlightening besides all this is Barchi Amadi Because Barchi Amadi bestowed Joe, Joe Wood that Yale medal knowing that he gambled because it said it was commonology joe's like yeah we gambled and to throw a rose out but what people didn't know which is the subject of my next book bart giamatti was in on the collusion scandal of the 1980s from 1985 to 1988 not one major free agent was picked up by any team if you go back in time I lived in New York at the time. Peter Uberoth, Commissioner Uberoth, saw the balance sheets in the third game of the World Series between Kansas City and St. Louis. I remember I was 15 years old watching the series and in a conference center at Bush Stadium. He's like, you guys are a freaking bunch of knuckleheads. Look at your, you know, your financials. You're all in the red. You would rather spend $10 million on one player to try to win the World Series than spend maybe $1 million and pick up lesser players and just finish eating. You're not running businesses. And he told them. He's like, spending on free agents is not worth it. They get injured. They don't. Pay. It's a waste of money. And you people are a bunch of boneheads for doing it. And lo and behold, no free agents are being picked up. None. Kirk Gibson was the most prized possession that season. And no one took him. He had to go back to the Tigers for less of his salary because no one is willing to pay. And so what happened was... Giamatti was in it. He was the president of the National League in 1986, 85, 86, 87. The owners colluded to not pick up any free agents. Now, the union, because it was a union at the time, took the uh, owners to court. In the end, there were three cases. Collusion one for the first year, collusion two and three. The owners, the day after Giamatti died... The arbitrator ruled that baseball was guilty of collusion and had to pay the players $280 million in back salaries for doing bad things. And with the interest, it amounted to over $450 million, and the last collusion payment took place in 2004. Now... Now, well, now it's, it's too much money, too much, no. too much um, in my body. Now. This is the kicker of
1: it.
0: Right. It. Well, well well think of it. And that was the biggest scandal ever in baseball. No one wrote a book on John Hadler. The twenty-fifth anniversary of uh, The Lords of Baseball touches on for about three, four chapters. I wrote over a thousand pages of my manuscript. I'm publishing it in two volumes because I got the court cases, the arbitrator, the witnesses, Uberoth, you know, Marvin Miller. And Marvin Miller said, when you think of it, in scandalous proportions, you had eight. That's where I got the idea. You have eight for the Black Sox, which is thought to be the biggest scandal. Here, you have all 26 teams, their scouts, all two various presidents of both the American League and National League, and a commissioner that is literally... Throwing the pennant because picking up free agents that can be like, could fill a hole somewhere or get your team to the playoffs. In reality, by not picking up these free agents, you're throwing the pennant. For three seasons, that's when the Mets beat Boston. We don't
1: talk about
0: that. Yeah, I know. I was in New York at the time. You know, um, when the Twins beat the Cardinals. And that home run by Kirk Gibson went off of Dennis Eckersley, signaled the end of collusion. Because remember what I told you, Kirk Gibson was the first victim. When the decision came down on collusion one, not on the um, not on the um, damages, which was a day after uh, Giambi died. When the it came down. Kirk Gibson was granted free agency, so he could go to any other team. He went to Los Angeles. And so and that's why he ended up on Los Angeles, because the arbitrator said, You got until May to go to another team. And he went to the Dodgers. And when he hits that home run and he's trying to get he's injured, that ends collusion. Seeing the writing on the wall, Peter Uber off. Refuses to uh, be a uh, commissioner again and resigns a year before his uh, term was up. And he yeah, went to I do it. 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 Yeah, but now you know why. Yeah, no, no. Now you know why. That's alright, because Kirkham's been
1: bringing it around. DJ. Yeah. <laughs> the
2: basis. I help my daughter's uh, team on a uh, Tuesday night win because of that.
0: I knew it but collusion when I saw the newspaper articles and the arbitrators the the transcripts um, I actually got in touch with Donald Fair's brother who was um, prosecuting the case uh, on behalf of the uh, players Uh, and I interviewed uh, Dave Kingman uh, Tim Raines Uh, they were all caught up in this and um, Bill Giles before he died Uh, Philadelphia who admit to this day one of the biggest architects of collusion is in the Hall of Fame his name is Bud Selig oh yeah he was in him and him and uh, what was the owner's name in uh, Chicago? Reinsdorf. He owned uh, yeah. together. They wanted to destroy the union, and they were the architects of collusion. Him and him, they were Uberoth's chief lieutenants. And again, all this stuff stems back to Carbon Speaker.
1: Oh no! I was gonna say it was interesting Uberoff was was in the eighties. He was everywhere. Was the up- everywhere. And, and
0: the baseball was then he just dropped off. I mean still alive, I did not know. Haven't heard he is. In fact 30 years. In fact, in fact, he is on the committee for the 2024 Olympics in Los Angeles, just like he was in 1984. He won Man of the Year, and that's why baseball wanted him. Yeah. He and I write about he would stretch a dime he was a notorious cheapskate by the age of 24 years old he was president of a travel agent service he graduated uh, from college in 59 and by the time a few years ago he was a multimillionaire. he sold his business in 1980 to work on the Los Angeles Olympics for 300 million dollars in 1980 then he became uh, commissioner of baseball his ambition was to become president but the scam really ruined them. It really ruined them. Yeah. It really and it's all been hushed up. You never hear of collusion uh, because no one wants to talk about it. It wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Major League Baseball would sue me when my book comes out next year. It would not be surprised. But again, I got all these things, you know, I got all these things ticked and tied. To this day, Bud Selig said there was never collusion. You brought says there was never collusion. We just tried to keep salaries down. Oh. You know, we just, we just did the smart money thing. And it
1: was,
2: it was easy to see when the discussion was free in the, in the press, that it was just, it's logical because that's what people are
0: doing. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, well, yeah. yeah.
1: When in 86, he gave the investment address of in the Cross. Uber uh, off. Yeah. Um, but why, why, like, why do you, like, why do you like, there's other sports with scandals. Yep. Have you thought about radio all that stuff?
0: I have, in fact my football book of 1970 comes out, I'm publishing it myself actually I got two books coming out one with my publisher on baseball and one on NFL 70 and what the merger between the AFL and NFL and all the stuff that went through there and then the first um, Super Bowl uh, that was of the first uh, NFL because you had four Super Bowls uh, and it was the AFL versus the NFL so when the Jets beat the Colts they always thought the AFL was a minor league. Even Vince Lombardi said in the first Super Bowl, "If we lose to Kansas City, <laughs> I'm going to kill you guys." We're the real league, They're not the AFL. They're the babies. And so you should see the underhanded things. Uh, while Pete Rozelle, the um, you know the uh, commissioner of football, he saw the money that's going to go into this and all the back talk, even behind the coaches' back amongst the owners, how it would profit football. And what happened was, in 1970, the year I was born, they merged into one. And here's here's where some of the collusion took place. Because the NFL had 16 teams and the uh, AFL had 10, the three teams were bribed to go to the the new AFC. It was Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and I forget who else. Was that Cleveland? They were bribed to go. Five, I think it was five million dollars a club to go to the new uh, American. And Baltimore was like a fish out of water when Baltimore won and was going to go to the Super Bowl. They all criticized Baltimore for having an easy schedule. <laughs> and even when they won the Super Bowl that year in the most sloppily played, most forgettable bowl, bowl. the bl- yeah, the blunder bowl. The most sloppiest play. There was 11 turnovers, 7 by the winning team. Um,
1: i, 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 I mean, not from any the sources, but I've certainly heard rumblings that Super Bowl 3 was fixed.
0: There is rumblings regarding that. I haven't pinpointed any evidence to it.
1: Kind of like the 56 championship game, too. That's yeah. about that, too.
0: But... When you see a team like Baltimore, who was 15-1, going up against the Jets and Joe Namath make him, I am gonna win the Super Bowl. The, the biggest, teams teams biggest, the biggest upset. The, the,
1: the, the
0: Jets beat the Baltimore. That was the biggest ball. one. And it was bigger than the Giants beating the Patriots. I missed the Giants versus Patriots, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Uh, I wish, I'm a Giants fan. I'm from New York. I'm a Yankees fan. My wife just gave birth to twin boys at the time. So I had to feed, do feedings all through the night, so I couldn't stay up. Yeah. They're huge. they huge. You didn't have one of each. No, no, they're both huge. I, we always go to Gillette. I live, what, eight minutes from it in North Iowa. And I... You know, for 37 years, I went to all the schooling. 32 years of schooling, three masters, a law degree. I was a trial lawyer. I was a vice president of Smith. No one told me that a baby cries all night. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that's, ne- one of the, that's another aspect of collusion. <laughs> <laughs> not, not only not only one, but two. I had an hour of sleep for about three months because their stomachs were so small. So I'm like this all night. When is this gonna stop? In the frigid cold because they were born in November. So I went to bed half time when I saw Tom Petty because I saw Tom Petty in concert about 10 times. I wanted to see him on his last tour before he died two years ago. So I went to bed and by that time the kids were about three months old and so they were feeding not every hour and a half they were, they were doing it every three hours so sleep. yeah no but they were on different schedules so you have one oh uh, yeah I had 24 bottles in the refrigerator at all the time the diapers you, you couldn't I diapered 3,000 diapers in a matter of six months and you know, I talked to some of my friends who didn't diaper their kids at all I'm like what kind of father are you <laughs> you know so you can't let my wife so, please, so your child Attorney. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Are you still a trial attorney? I am a tax attorney, and I do and I do private practice now. Yeah. Really? Uh, I'm a home. Yeah. I'm a trial attorney. That's what I say. Oh, you're a trial attorney. What law school did you go to? Uh, Catholic down in D.C. I went to Mass School of Law up in Andover. I'm going to be presenting there November 5th. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's my It's my re- tax attorney. You so went my father. <laughs>
1: who was your father? My father used to work for the IRS. Walter
0: Gallus. He retired a
1: couple years. Oh yes. He was
0: regional. Yeah. So was Eugene and Emilio. That, must, that was his boss, who was my professor in the MST program in, in Bryant. So yeah, I, uh, I, I started out being personal injury. Hey, where's your office in Easton? I do
1: personal injury. I de- well, I defend people who are accused. I defend the people who
0: are wrong with Okay. me. <laughs> okay. Where's your firm? I work at Kent. Oh, so Kent. You know who Albert E. Grady is in Brockton? I tried a
1: few cases
0: against Ah, He was my boss for a you few years. I worked for Al back in uh, 2000. Okay. I worked for a firm called Bloom and Buell before that on medical malpractice cases. I think Barbara Buell's nearing 80. I, I,
1: I tried to get. Yeah,
0: he's still in. He's still doing it. 75 years old. Yeah. I beat him, but I don't know about it. 70. Did your law angle get you into this stuff? Yes. And I'll tell you why. Um. When I had my surgeries, I was telling her, I had nine surgeries on my feet. I had to retire. I was pretty much 41 years old. I had to give up my uh, career. So I laid in bed all these years. So when I saw this, and I looked through all the laws and all this stuff. My, like, this is great. So I know my my editor couldn't even read the legal parts. He's like, you just deal with that. So uh, when this came out, if you read the reviews on Amazon, two of the people give it five stars, but they criticize me. It's top heavy on legal. What the hell do you expect? <laughs> it's it's all legal, you know. It's top heavy. It's great research. You've done great research. You must have been, but it's legal. Every book I write has some sort of legal aspect of it due to my uh, training as an attorney. So,
1: oh, uh, you're, not
2: you're not criticizing it from a literary point of view. No. What do they say?
0: It's a, it's a book about laws and how it changed everything. What do you expect? <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> you
1: know. Lawyers could understand the legal aspects yeah. of it. Yeah.
0: You know, there's legal realism versus legal formalism. Again, stretch the law, stretch the Constitution, and I get into the whole thing of Landis and how he ruled, uh, well, he didn't rule Major League Baseball. Remember the Federal League I was telling you guys about? Yeah. Uh, that uh, they were in competition. Mm-hmm. The case came to him in the Federal District court and he couldn't justify because he would have to rule against baseball and he loved baseball he knew that if he ruled he would destroy the institution of baseball if he let the feds win so he did the only thing any other noble person did he put the case on the back burner hoping that something would happen in a year. You say, like, if this isn't settled in a year, I'm going to have to rule. And it was. They settled out a court, yeah. <laughs> sparing Landis. Uh, you know, uh, the, the thing of ruling against Major League Baseball now. Another Federal League Court case came up, which is still good law today, in 1922. The Federal League of Baseball versus Major League Baseball to the Supreme Court. And again, you have Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. saying... Baseball is not part of interstate commerce. The antitrust laws do not apply to baseball. Baseball is not part of interstate commerce. And because it's not, the feds can't touch you.
1: Which is why all these football leagues challenge the NFL.
0: Yeah. Because football, hockey, basketball, they're all part of antitrust to this day. That's good law. However, they have narrowed it down with like the the. Um, and
2: if it's a business that can mm-hmm. across state lines, mm-hmm.
0: it's a business. Yep, it certainly that is. Travel,
2: its a business. It's
0: mm-hmm. not just a sport. Yep, and
1: because any kid can travel across state lines if mm-hmm. that's all they want. Yep, every once in a while, Congress will say, you know, we're going to look at that and get rid of it, but they never do.
0: they never did.
2: Doesn't that isn't that what we keep the sport cleaner?
0: I don't know if it'll keep it cleaner. Uh,
2: I mean, people are so always so involved in trying to play the angle that mm-hmm. it's always going to be part of any of those things. In
0: 1924, so when you will have your kids play little
2: league, and even then, there are parents who will say it's not fair to
0: mine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the antitrust is baseball interstate comic. Of course, it is. But this is the, the Supreme Court heard the case three different, four different times, including the last one with uh, what's his name, Kurt Flood. You took, and even Marvin Miller, you're not going to win. The court is notoriously, they don't want to touch baseball for some reason.
1: Well, baseball, baseball is a special place in America. And yeah,
0: exactly. And
1: it Always has, or always will. But well, it I'm survives
2: over. that well with the corruption behind it or interior to it. Why can't it survive without it? No, no, I, I'm not disagreeing with yeah.
1: you. But then again, after a while, people accept whatever corruption happened and, and move on. They move on. I mean, but they don't. don't change change, change they don't. They don't. They don't.
0: The thing that no,
2: this is about the season mm-hmm. during the
0: war. Oh, 1918. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Was it? Oh, I heard from people who were mm-hmm. who gave flu, the Spanish flu and stuff. Like, hmm. And that the reason the game was, the World Series game in Boston was set up a month earlier was because they were afraid that the epidemic would, it would be epidemic by the time, just the fact that people were congregating Mm -hmm. so much. So they made it come early and they said it was because of the war. And everybody took that, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, it seemed like a good prophylactic thing without scaring the
1: public, but... There is a, I ships offshore, right? I mean, ships were returning soldiers, mm-hmm. weren't Offshore, yeah. it things, was They
0: found out. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, it was never publicly said. I did find evidence that uh, the Spanish flu was part of the reason. The other part was to show that Major League Baseball was behind the war effort. That was the thing. The smokescreen was the influenza. But even so, the influenza. Oh, even so, 25 million people died from the influenza. That was more than all of World War One, oh. and, it, and, it, and, it, oh,
2: yeah, and it's kind of forgotten. It, it is. And I mean, the, the, the uh, quarantine yep. in Massachusetts was just let up right before the end of...
0: And the thing, the thing. Once people walked around in masks because you couldn't breathe out. It, You could wake up healthy at eight, and by noon you were dead. Yeah. And people were being like, "In you ever see the uh, the old Russian films of uh, Leningrad when it was surrounded by Germany? Just pulling people out of the house right in the middle of the street and let street sweepers come and the <laughs> yeah, it was that. Uh, New York, Boston, but the World Series. Uh, Johnson wanted to show that it was a patriotic effort Dutch Leonard was pitching in 1918 and seeing the writing on the wall that the uh, draft was going to come to him because first it was single man and then he was 3A or 4A he was low on the draft but now that the war was heating up and it would only end two months after the war November of 18 but no one knew that at the time and Leonard went to work Um, he vacated the socks like many of the other players and he went to a um, shipyard in Massachusetts because that was exempt because that was for the war effort a lot of these ball players went into factories that were for the war effort, so they wouldn't be conscripted into the army and Leonard went wasn't there the
2: Supreme Court uh, decision that
0: Sports players were not exempt from serving. No, there was no. No, no. Because the feds came out and said, baseball is not immune. You will go. And a lot of people did go. Well, that was later on. He went into two wars, Korea and World War II. Uh, but in, in 1918, a lot of them jumped. And they got they got Leonard. And when he went into the Army, the war ended. So the feds brought him to training camp and it ends and so what happens was um he didn't want to go back to uh boston so he went to detroit and there you have the thing in 1919 the whole thing down because he was a friend of speakers because he was on boston he was with uh he, he always said even Wood said in his uh, unpublished transcript hey you know the, uh, woody was a friend of mine i hate to do this to woody and you know Wood gives his own uh, spiel on it, but it was all connected in World War One. Not enough, you know, not enough um, information comes out about it. It's not as highly touted as World War Two, which really, you know. It was the biggest war ever and changed everything. But World War I changed everything in America. All the dynamics changed and in the world itself, you know, at the time. It was the prelude to World War Two, but it was the peace that lost the war (laughs) because we didn't join the League of Nations Woodrow Wilson uh, got a very terrible fight by the Republican Congress and people were starving they were losing their jobs they were losing their houses and you know you had the Bolshevist scare coming around and you had you know the whole prohibitionist thing, and then you had religious revival, and then you had problems with immigration, they didn't wanted to cut down on immigration, uh, and so you had a, you had a huge, along with the Ku Klux Klan, you had a huge religious revival, and, and in it you had this nationalism, what constitutes being an American, an alien doesn't. You know, there was race riots. There were lynchings all through this time period. You know, they were hanging from trees, African-American people. Uh, It was this kind of what constitutes America? You know, we went to fight a war. Is these immigrants coming into the country? Are they really establishing stores, you know, around the corner from me? You know, the area, the Greek market, you know, let's go burn it down. And I think that lasted well into the 30s, because I'll tell you, Hank Greenberg. Have you ever heard of Hank? Jewish player, and he didn't know anti-Semitism until he was sentenced to minors into the South. <laughs> He's a big guy, Greenberg, six foot four, and but he grew up in the Bronx, right across the street from Yankee Stadium in a Jewish area. He goes down south. Now he went to Detroit. And Henry Ford wrote a book on anti-Semitism, which was on Hitler's desk. And you got to love Ford. Ford was also part of this American thing that when he brought immigrants into his factories, he made them take classes and swear an oath that they would be Americans and not do their heritage in the United States. He was one of the biggest anti semitics and he used Greenberg to sell cars to him in the 1930s. So he used Greenberg because of his popularity. It was depression time. You know, gate receipts uh, were not going. People criticized Landis, that he was a racist. And I read many things uh, that Landis said, the N-word and all this stuff. And it might have been true due to the time period when everyone said, even even Casey Stengel said about uh, Elston Howard. They sent me, they said to me a, 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 an N-word and he can't even run like the rest of them. But that was the generation they grew up with. Landis gets criticized as being a racist and, and he wouldn't let uh, black players in. That was father Front the truth his father uh, got injured at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain which is his name which is his name back then yeah. you're named after generals or you're named after famous battles so his father who was a doctor got injured and he had to give up his practice because he had a bum leg and he bought farmland and they were pretty much in the north Landis's father fought for the Union Okay. He himself really didn't have any, um, uh, you know, racial overtones uh, per se. The reason why he didn't let blacks in was because of the depression. Baseball took a hit, and the owners didn't want it. And who pays the commissioner's salary? The owners. So you got, and like, like Marvin Miller said you know when collusion came out in the age how, how could how could the owners have collusion you know they can't agree on anything and people didn't want to believe it and people forgot for decades it was collusion to exclude blacks from Major League Baseball it was a collusion that went on for 70 years, yeah, people didn't know it for years. no and why would you my grandmother grew up in the age in New York City and if you went on a bus and you saw a black person sit, and if you point and they don't do it, you would call the cop. The cop would come and beat him up send him out. It's the way it was, she told me.
1: Yeah. You know, and, if you're
0: a certain race, you have to go to the next street in Dorchester. You know, I've, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I've seen the race wars. I was beaten for being a Jewish kid. I was... Whatever it is. You know, I've seen the race wars. I've seen the attitudes. It's still racially divided, especially up here in Boston when you see things hanging from the rafters. Hey, we're still here. We did good, I think. Nice. Do you think these... Yeah, was Awesome. It's absolutely good. You thought it was good? Yes. Well, maybe I should go back to teaching. I have to.
1: See. You know, the you know, I love baseball. I just I love baseball in my life. The reason I love baseball is actually the maternal part of my family. My mother had five sisters, and all of them Die hard baseball fans. Yeah. All of them. My father very much a fair weather fan. If they're winning, he'll watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father's a football fan. That's his passion. But baseball if they're winning, otherwise he can't be bothered with it. So it was yeah. my mother and her sisters. All of them. They never missed a game. They would Man. listen to it on the radio or watch on TV. It was always the word. I was telling him that my father
2: was a teenager from Chicago. And when the black socks had scandal hit, he said, it's it's a great American sport. Why can it be? How is it corrupted? Yeah. I will never watch it again. He never really? watched it again. Never. And I didn't find that out until he was bedridden in his eight nineties.
1: No, but I became up a
2: baseball fan from playing it as a kid, oh, yeah. and then I I associated or happened to get lucky to associate with people who really understood baseball. And what I, I, I loved it.
0: And what did F. Scott Fitzgerald say about the 1919 World Series? It lost a faith of 50 million. Yeah. <laughs>